Hello, everybody. This is Kevin Witham, and welcome to Season 3 of the Common Grounds Unity Podcast. Jesus valued unity and prayed for it, that we may all be one. We believe unity is best achieved through relationships rather than beginning with disagreements over doctrine, practice, or ideology. We value the gathering, breaking bread and sharing a cup of coffee or your favorite beverage. We invite you to gather with another Christian outside your particular family of churches and tell others that unity starts with a cup of coffee. So grab a cup and let's get started with another episode of the Common Ground Unity Podcast. Welcome back to part two of last week's podcast. Thanks for being with us and we're going to pick up the conversation where we left off. So you kind of move on later in the book, Steve, and discuss second order change uh, and, and it kind of ties in the gospel in my mind, or maybe another way of saying it, uh, kind of an unhealthy system moving towards a healthy system. Uh, I really like that. Can you explain the good news of the gospel in the terms of system when you kind of tie that in together as far as second order change for us? Yeah. Second order change is a very advanced tool in systems theory. In fact, um, it came well after the founder of systems theory, after Murray Bowen. What happened is, you know, this guy Murray Bowen in the 50s and 60s, he created this new theory, and then people have been iterating it since into some pretty fresh and amazing ways. And so there was a group in Palo Alto in the 70s and 80s called the Mental Research Institute, and they were remarkable people. I swear they must have been on LSD or something. I mean, they just were such like wild hair, out-of-the-box thinkers. And they, they became fascinated with how do people actually change? Like, how do you change? And so they left the therapy couch and they chased thermonuclear dynamics and mathematical theory. They just went anywhere they see change, what's going on. And they discovered in physics this thing called second order change. And, and it is complicated. So I'll try, to, I'll try to give it simply. And I'm also aware that on audio, it can be tricky but the simple idea is that humans get stuck. We have problems and we get stuck. So let's take my son when he was playing basketball. He came home from practice one day and he complained about a teammate. We'll call him William. And my son, Andrew, he's like, look, dad, William is a ball hog. Okay, now we have a problem. William is a ball hog. That's the problem. But where second order change gets interesting is sometimes our attempted solution to fix the problem makes the problem worse. So I said to Andrew, well, what do you do about it? And Andrew said, well, William won't pass to me. I'm not passing to William. Well, it doesn't take much to know that's not going to work. And System Theory would say that Andrew's attempted solution is the problem. It's perpetuating William because, of course, William is going home to his parents and saying, Andrew's a ball hog because we're all egomaniacs. And what you're looking for in second order change, you're trying to figure out, am I stuck? Is my best effort actually making it worse or keeping it the same? And the way you know you're stuck is anytime your solution is more of the same or anytime your solution is try harder. So Andrew at practice would withhold the ball from William and the more William withheld the ball, the more Andrew would make sure to not pass to him. That's a more of the same attempted solution that's keeping the problem stuck. And then you get down to second order change. 
So that would have been first order changes doesn't work. You're able to dissolve the very system in the first. You're dissolving the problem rather than attacking the problem and building resistance in it. I think as it relates to the gospel, I think humans are stuck in sin. And our first order solution or attempted solution is hide and blame. Uh, That's the Garden of Eden, hide and blame. And so rather than dealing with our sin, we try to minimize it. We saw that in the Me Too movement. We've seen that in some very famous church pastors who have been caught in scandals. And they're doing some version of minimizing or it's not that bad. Or the thing that drives me crazy, guys, is these these pastors caught in these uh, sexual abuse situations. And they're saying, well, not all of the story is true. Like, come on, take responsibility. And so that's, uh, I, I think we're all stuck in our sin. And I think Jesus brings a true second order change by transforming us through salvation and changing what our heart wants. I think that's the miracle of salvation is Jesus has, I mean, I still struggle with sin, but Jesus has shown me the end of sin, which is death. Sin is trying to destroy my life. God is trying to give me life. And so Jesus has changed what my heart wants, and that's gotten me out of that more of the same and try harder loop. And then I think that's the problem with our discipleship is I think a lot of our discipleship is in a more of the same try harder exhaustive loop. And that's what my next book is really covering. I'm doing system theory through the lens of spiritual growth. We'll tackle some of that in more depth. Excellent. That's awesome. In your book, you also talk about um, four spaces. What are they and why are they important? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I'm always looking for ways because system theory is so conceptual. I'm always looking for ways for people to actually be able to do something. Um, I think that's why system theory hasn't really taken off like maybe Enneagram or something, because people read it and they're not quite sure what to do. So four spaces is simply a way to walk into any environment and notice where the anxiety is. And what's interesting is since I published the book, I've adapted the four spaces a bit, where the first space is the space in me. And like, if you can just ask yourself, how do I know when I'm anxious? And it's actually not as easy to know as you might think. It's quite hard to know when you're anxious. So that's space number one is the space in me. Space number two is the space between me and the other person. It's often found in a marriage or if you have a child or if you were a child once and you had parents. It's this anxiety that spreads so quickly between any two people. If you want to see the space in me at work, just go on Facebook, uh, the space between me and the other. And you will see in that comment section how quickly things devolve And those people are no longer connected. They're no longer listening to each other. They're trying to win something. The space inside the other is the third space. That's any time my brain has moved into your brain. I am trying to think about what you're thinking. I've crossed a boundary and maybe I'm worried about what you're thinking. Maybe I'm a people pleaser. I'm like, oh, what what does Tina think of me? Or maybe I'm irritated by people. What are they thinking? It's that same kind of idea, but you're trying to worry your way to someone else changing. That's third space. Fourth space is the space between others. This is the space I got really good at as a chaplain because I would walk into existing family units and have to join that family unit as a stranger and connect to them emotionally to help them navigate the worst moment of their life. 
So the recognition that there's a mood going on before I walked in. And I've noticed particularly with certain kinds of pasta, I don't want to make a generalized statement, but certain kinds of lead pasta, they've become so used to being the center of attention, not because they're egomaniacs, but because the system has kind of put them in that place. You know, Mitch, I think maybe you were referring to that a bit before, that they end up taking over every room they're in. Like if you've ever met a pastor that before he sits down to lunch at a restaurant, he has to work the room and he goes and greets people at tables. Now he is oblivious to fourth space. What if he's interrupting a fragile conversation at a table? Maybe somebody is sharing about the cancer diagnosis and there he is. Hey, everybody He's kind of the ringmaster, you know? Um, so learning how to enter into fourth space, and then learning how to notice when you're in fourth space and somebody pollutes it can be really powerful as a leader. So those are the spaces where anxiety spreads. Those are also the spaces where God moves. And so if we can learn to notice how anxiety is pushing out awareness of God and help lower anxiety in those four spaces, we can be a really powerful leader. That's great. I remember circling mine. I, I can't read a book without making uh, John knows his lots of notes. I think you said name it to tame it right about there too in that particular page. I love that phrase. I went, you got to be self-aware is not the end, but you at least got to sit there and go, I got to get started differently. Uh, I do think it applies to systems uh, for years. We could, we could do a another theme at the big church I was a part of, a different way of saying the same thing to quote unquote, either get people more evangelistic or da, 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 you know, can fill in the blanks. It lasted about what, two or three months and people would forget what the theme right. is, right? So a very interesting process there. So you mentioned a lot of un other unhealthy traps, uh, maybe cognitive dissonance might be one you want to share rather than going through them all. Uh, are, are there a couple that you go, I see this a lot in leadership systems. I know you you have that whole chapter, double mess, double binds, mixed messages, uh, leadership landmines, all that. Anything come to mind you would go, this is what I, maybe since post-COVID, do you see anything you go, boy, this really happens a lot to people now that memberships are listening and not there, or maybe contributions a little lower than they thought it was going to be. Anything pop there for you? Yeah, those two chapters are really tackling the universal triggers inside each of us and the universal triggers that come at us from others. I, I, I just run into so many leaders that are carrying so much internal pressure to do it just right. And, and so I think in the book, I'd, that would be closest to imposter syndrome. Um, but th this false belief that a leader should know what to do and I think we do think leadership is a tightrope, but I think it's more of a vista. I think there's more room to be human as a leader than we give ourselves. So I do see a lot of leaders carrying pressure. So like leaders who led through COVID, I mean, I led our church through COVID. It was really hard. But I think we expected that we would know how to do something we'd never done. We had to make decisions we'd never had to make before. Um, no matter what decision we made, it was usually unpopular in some circles in our church, if we have any kind of diversity in that church at all. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think the most common challenge coming at us is probably a phantom mob. I find that if we're talking specifically with pastors, 
that's the dynamic that hurts pastors the most is that phantom mob leader comes to the pastor and says, all these people are talking. And in your mind, those people are legion. Um, we, we had a delightful women's ministry volunteer leader. She called me in tears. She's just such a sweet, kind lady. And she said, Steve, I'm so sorry. She said, and this is the phrase she used to me. She said, droves of women are leading the church because of me. And I'm like, how, how can that possibly be? You're about the kindest soul I know. How could <laughs> droves? And I think I would know if droves of women, but somebody had come to her as the volunteer women's ministry leader. And um, our church allowed for Christian yoga. We had a lady that did yoga in our basement. And this critic decided that yoga is satanic and we're letting in demons into our church by doing yoga. Uh, I'll just say I'm not a big yoga guy, but I have found it to be a wonderful way to connect to God. So, so, but this, this critic had come to our women's leader and said, because you're allowing yoga in the church, droves of women are leaving. Well, that's a phantom mob. And I just said to this women's leader, I said, well, let them leave. Because first of all, Drugs of women, and that's not true. But secondly, how dare this woman like do that to you? But that I find that happens a lot. I've had that happen to me. And I, I usually get pretty aggressive, honestly, with that kind of behavior. I'm like, where are the let's so if that woman had come to me and said droves of women, I'm like, let's meet with these droves. Do we have a room big enough for these droves? I mean, do we need a coliseum here? <laughs> well, it's it's that woman and maybe two or three others. But when someone's so wrapped up in themselves and they're venting about Christian yoga, they're triangulating the person they're venting to. And that person's just like nodding, and they're saying, okay, she agrees as much as I do. She's now on my phantom team. I found that to really do tremendous damage to, to great leaders, not just pastors, but wonderful volunteers who are doing their best. Those would be two off the top of my head. That's great. Thank you. How might spiritual formation, spirituality, rest, and the contemplative disciplines help us become more differentiated and live healthier spiritual lives? Oh, man. That, you know, that may be the question, the, the most important thing we talk about, because chronic anxiety displaces our awareness of God, and it gives us a false gospel that we must figure this out. So any contemplative or spiritual practice that helps you remember the Lord and lets you wait until you notice God's presence can just change everything. Um, when I know God's with me, I can do just about anything. But my chronic anxiety very subtly convinces me that it's all on my shoulders. So what I've learned to do, I wrote about it a bit in the book, I've learned to notice when I've stopped noticing God and just, okay, now, just let me take a minute or 20 minutes. It, what's ironic is it doesn't take long at all to get off the anxiety treadmill long enough to take a couple of breaths and remember the Lord. And sometimes I remember the Lord through very typical practices like scripture reading and prayer. Sometimes I remember the Lord by rubbing my dog's ears and remembering that this dog is a gift from God and just giving thanks to God for my dog or hugging my wife or like it can be these traditional practices that are so rich and helpful because you, you know you can't beat the bible for encountering what's true um, but sometimes it's also 
just in the gifts that God has given us in the people in our life and the activities. So before we were recording, we're talking about the guitar behind me. That guitar is on my life giving list and playing it on a regular basis is for me an act of worship. So spiritual practices can be so helpful because chronic anxiety, it won't go away on its own. It has to be displaced. And so the best way I know to displace it is to, to remember the Lord and however that, however you do that. That's great. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with the rest of this episode. We want to take a moment to thank Mission Alive and Central Christian College of the Bible for sponsoring this episode. Mission Alive equips leaders to start innovative communities of faith focused on transforming marginal communities. They provide church planning, training, apprenticeships, consulting, and discipleship cohorts, among other resources. They can also train you to be a nationally accredited coach through Catalyze Coach Training. This 28-week credential will equip you to impact and transform your church organization leadership and ministry. Learn how God can transform your life and ministry by going to missionalive.org. That's missionalive.org or emailing them at contact at missionalive.org. And Central Christian College of the Bible has low-cost, innovative, and flexible master's programs in ministry leadership and preaching that they want you to know about. These two-year programs are designed to be one-third online, one-third on campus, and one-third supervised ministry by an expert in your interest area. The mentoring courses can offer credit in your local ministry. Graduates like Dr. Don Mahardy and Jonathan Curtis are impacting the kingdom in deeper, more meaningful ways because of their education at CCCB. So find out more at cccb.edu front slash graduate. That's cccb.edu front slash graduate. So could you talk uh, at the end a little bit about some of the practical tools towards the end of the book you offer? Uh, Like I, I think I mentioned earlier before we got on, this idea of giving the gift of the last word uh, hit me really good in a good way. I, I felt like I was in meetings for years where either the mightiest person in the room was going to win, and we knew that was going to happen after maybe two or three hours of elder staff meetings. I'm sure you've been to some of those, Christian church also. Yeah. Or just the person who waits till the end, and they always have the last word. Either way, you know, you kind of know that's where you're going to head. So that that was impactful for me. And I did read uh, Friedman's uh, book on, I uh, can't remember the title right now, but just the idea of being a non-anxious presence. Uh, yeah. That's really been important. It's, it's an important change late in life for me. You know, you read things, you wish you knew them in your 20s. But, you know, right. I, I took family systems theory at 62 at Lipscomb University. So I'm way behind. I'm always a late bloomer. But maybe some things you go, just practically, here's a place people start. You just mentioned life-giving list. Maybe you want to talk mm. more about that. Maybe this will be things that might be helpful people listening just to get started. Hmm. Yeah. Some of these lists are universal for all. Some of these tools are universal for all of us, and some of them are particular. So in my case, it sounds like you resonate. When I'm anxious, I have this incessant need to explain myself until you agree with me or understand me. Yeah, that's me. That's the problem. 
And if that's the problem, then the solution is I must give you the last word and break this false need. And I really am inspired by Jesus. Like I'm, I'm absolutely stunned that he can stand in Pilate's court falsely accused and be silent. When I'm falsely accused, I use a lot of words. <laughs> so what I've had to learn is, man, I can be falsely accused and I am well because of God. I don't need, but, but my anxiety is telling me the only way to be well is if they, if they see your side. Now, of course, if the false accusation is some kind of integrity thing, that's different. But I'm more talking about just the nature of some people to misread my motives. You know, it's just, this happens in church. People think that I'm a power monger or something like that when I'm not. Um, that's not going to make the newspaper. That's not going to, that's not an integrity issue. So my need for them to believe me makes me anxious. So just listening to them as they accuse me and say, okay, well, thanks for sharing your point of view and refusing to explain myself is really freeing. The life-giving list, that's, you know, my dog's floppy ears and my wife's hug and all of these things. Man, it's, it's just so helpful. So many Christian leaders, we give away too many of God's gifts we're too generous. Uh, Bernard of Clairvaux, that early church father, Bernard of Clairvaux actually told, warned us to not be more generous than God. I find that so provocative. Bernard says the problem with human ministers is we're all canals. We give every drop of water goes through us and out. And Bernard says God's a reservoir. God has an abundance that he gives out of the overflow and I think a lot of the reason Christian leaders are anxious is we're giving too much away. And so the life-giving list to me is just to make sure that we're receiving. Um, a, a lot of us are more comfortable giving than receiving, and we blame Jesus for it. But actually, it's not God's fault that we're others-focused. It's that we um, put our own lives in peril. I'm, I'm that way. I overextend myself. I... I don't take care of myself. And so the life-giving list is a tool to really make sure that you're enjoying the God that you're proclaiming to others. You're tripping over God's goodness every day. Uh, there's a number of other tools in there. There's, there's sophisticated tools like how do you lower the anxiety in another person? How do you reframe? Those are fairly advanced. But um, the whole goal is just to see that leadership is anxiety diffusion. I think we often think of leadership as a mission, you know, but if you see yourself as, oh, my job is to create a culture where people can be human-sized and well, boy, then I'll, I'll show you a mission that will get further. Um, so that's the big idea is that the leader takes responsibility for the anxiety management in the organization. Yep. We've been talking about your book, uh, Managing Leadership, Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, but tell us what's next for you. What what other things are you working on? What other things uh, would you like to share with us about, about what you do and, and the resources that you're creating for people? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously that first book was really focused on the leader. We thought if we can help the leader be well, it'll infect the organization. The next book um, is focused on the congregant. And we just want to put, put a book in the hands of every congregant about if you're struggling to experience the God that you believe in, that you believe in God's love, but you don't feel it. You believe God's presence, but you don't see it. 
then I'm, I'm taking systems theory and it's not as overt in this book. It's more like the tea bag that's infecting the book. If you know, it's systems theory is steeped in this book, but I'm helping the average person with their faith, notice their own assumptions, their own stuck patterns and their own attempted solutions. And also I'm looking at how we perpetuate those in our churches without blaming. I'm not looking to throw a part. I'm a pastor. I don't want to throw a pastor under the bus. But even some of our preaching habits, um, here'd be one example, Tina, is you go to church one week and we're all supposed to be like Peter that week. And then you come to church the next week and we're all supposed to be like Mary that week. And we, over time, we create a fictional disciple. Um, but even when Peter stepped out of the boat, you know, to follow Jesus, 11 out of the 12 disciples stayed in the boat. But I've never, ever heard a preacher get up, read the story of Peter walking on water and telling the congregants that they should probably stay in the boat this week. Even though 92% of the disciples stayed in the boat, we all always must be Peter. And even though that was a one-time story, we apply that one moment in time to the rest of our life. And so we end up stacking these expectations that none of us can hit. Isn't that so interesting? I have never, really... Steve, I have never thought about it that way. And no. that that was one instance. And yeah, that's that's so insightful. Sorry, I did, that just like hit me and I was going, oh, that's exactly right. Right. Well, and let's be honest, uh, Peter had a tremendous advantage over us because Jesus was miraculously floating on water, but we are to metaphorically walk on water. Well, that's much harder. If I had, like if, if we were doing this podcast and Jesus apparated into this room and was floating in midair and I knew it was Jesus, I'd do anything he told me to do, you know, but, but you and I don't get that. We have the invisible, intangible God. So I'm right. I'm, I'm trying to write a book that brings relief to followers so they can be human-sized followers, open their soul up to connect to God. And in October, we're doing a conference um, to help people with that. Dr. Chuck DeGroat's coming in for it. And you can go to my website and get tickets for that if you want. We're doing a in-person in Colorado, but you can also join on demand or live stream. But it's all about unlocking the things in us that block faith. We'll be sure to put the links to your website and other ways that people can connect with you in our show notes, because I think that's really like, this is not something you can just listen to once and then, and then, you know, like, oh, that was really helpful. I'm going to start applying all those things Steve said, like, this is like just the beginning of understanding. And so we'll make sure that the resources are available to our listeners and, um, Let's do one lightning round question each. Mitch, you can pick one so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit better. Great. Sure. Yeah, yeah I was just curious. Do you have a favorite city besides where you live? I love London. Huh. Um, I love going to London. Yeah. I think that's my favorite in North America. I can't think of a favorite. And then uh, in Australia, Perth, where I grew up, uh, there's nothing like the beaches in Perth. The, the color of the sky and the color of the ocean is magical. There you go. That makes me think, oh, let me put that on my list. It's the next place I want to go. <laughs> <laughs> um, would you willingly do karaoke? Yeah. I love to sing and I'm a very unreliable singer. So I really enjoy singing, but I'm not good at it. I don't like, I don't think my voice sounds very good, but I take great joy in singing. So karaoke could be perfect for me. Awesome. 
Awesome. Steve, my, thanks my so wife much. and I, by the way, back in the days of uh, VHS videotapes, we lived in a small town in Tennessee and our local video rental store had a big customer celebration night where if you sang karaoke, you got a free vent video rental. So my wife and I got up there and sang for because we had no money. So that was like a great deal for us. Yeah, we sang our way to a free rental. That's great. Yeah. Do you tell do you tell your kids that, that those stories and they're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First they of all, videotape, what are you talking about? They probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, it has been a great conversation. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Mitch, for co-hosting with us on these episodes. I just want to remind everyone that we have a vision at Common Grounds Unity to create and support gatherings of unity-minded Christians around the globe. And we invite you to imagine the impact of local gatherings meeting together and modeling unity. So grab a cup of coffee, sandwich, beverage with someone outside of your particular fellowship. And remember that unity starts with a cup of coffee. The way that we are able to continue this ministry is with your support. So please consider supporting us. You can find the links in our show notes, but it's www.commongroundsunity.org backslash donate or subscribing to our Patreon channel, which is also located in the show notes. And that is a great place to get extra content that we think you'll really not just enjoy, but it'll be beneficial to you. So we will see you on the next episode of Common Grounds Unity. Thank you for listening to the Common Grounds Unity podcast. Please check out commongroundsunity.org to learn more about who we are. You can subscribe to the essays, join our Facebook group, or find our YouTube channel. And please check out the gatherings page where you can connect with other unity-minded Christians in your area. If you want to volunteer or ask questions, please email john at commongroundsunity.org. And lastly, we need your help by donating to this ministry of reconciliation. Your donation is tax deductible. Links for donating are in the show notes or on our website. Until next time, God bless. And remember, unity starts with a cup of coffee.